Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, as in the background we hear the beautiful voice of Amalia Rodriguez, Dominic, a wonderful Fardé singer, and I know that you are a huge, huge fan of uh, Fardé, aren't you? It is the voice of Portugal's regret for what had once been. It is um, indeed, Tom. We we left Portugal not in a good state, Uh, lost Brazil, um, very impoverished, Um, and where are we in the 19th century? What is it that gives rise to Fardo? Um, is there anything to hope for? There's loads to hope for, Tom. This is going to be an absolutely thrilling... I mean, you don't want to start on a downer, do you? This is going to be a, no. a thrilling podcast. Uh, it's got music. It's got football. It's got fascism, or or, or is it fascism? Well, we will discuss that. Um, it's got Portuguese empire in the 20th century. It's got World War II. So it's the podcast with everything. But as you say, we start in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. So... Um, our third podcast, we were talking about sort of early modern Portugal, about the earthquake and about the Enlightenment and so on. Um, Portugal has, as you say, lost Brazil in the 1820s. It does still have an empire. Um, 19th century Portugal has Angola, Mozambique, East Timor, and, and Goa, for example. So it has Macau. And Macau. So yeah. it has a few sort of enclaves. Interestingly, the Portuguese don't really claim that that is an empire. They come to describe themselves as a pluricontinental nation. That's an excellent way to disguise an empire, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. So these places are not colonies. They're actually parts of, they're indivisible parts of Portugal. Um, so but 19th century Portugal, I mean, it's, it's basically a complete backwater. So rather like Spain, its history, its political history is to an outsider utterly bewildering and consists of endless coups and civil wars and arguments about constitutions and sort of feuding between liberals and conservatives. But that, in a way, is just the sort of surface 
stuff. And actually beneath that, the picture is one of a very, very agricultural country that has not really embraced industrial modernity at all. Um, it still has these two cities, Lisbon and Oporto, with very little industry, very little manufacturing. A great fact that I read in, in 1910, um, only about a fifth of workplaces that the Portuguese themselves describe as manufacturers, as factories, only about a fifth of them have more than 10 workers. Mm. And if you think that this is the heyday in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, of big factories employing thousands upon thousands of people, that gives you a sense of how far behind, as it were, Portugal is. And rather like with Spain, that sort of sense of stagnation is accompanied by an enormous political turbulence. Um, so administrations coming and going, people, kings and queens being deposed. Um, and, and, and it's in this period, I think, that you get the Portuguese, you really get this sort of sense that the Portuguese have been ill-served by history, the golden age is behind them, and that their defining characteristic to outsiders comes to be this kind of melancholy and nostalgia. So that's Saudade, is that right? That's Saudade, yes. So for those people who, I mean, there's a great description by a, a British travel writer called Aubrey Bell. Um, well, he was a great Hispanophile. He wrote a book called In Portugal in 1912. And he says, the famous Saudade of the Portuguese is a vague and constant desire for something that does not and probably cannot exist, for something other than the present, a turning towards the past or towards the future, not an active discontent or poignant sadness, but an indolent dreaming wistfulness. And there's this sort of sense that the defining characteristic of the Portuguese comes to be a kind of melancholy and a nostalgia and a kind of mourning for what had been. What had been for husbands lost at sea, for ancestors who vanished into the mists of time. Um, it's a sort of, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's actually extremely enjoyable as an outsider. You know, it's yeah. romantic. Well, it's, it's, it's Tolkien-esque, isn't it? It's very Tolkien-esque. It's the long defeat, all that kind of stuff that we were talking about last week. It's weird to be going back to Tolkien, but um, yeah, Tolkien, that thing about the elves mourning the passing of Middle Earth and all that. So that's all Sadade. That's all Sadade. Yeah, the greatest Portuguese modern writer is the poet um, Fernando Pessoa. He his poems are shot through with um, with Sadade, with nostalgia and melancholy. And there's actually a statue of him in Lisbon, which sits outside a cafe in the Chiado district, so a very upmarket district. There's the statue, and he's sitting at a table. And the, the cafe is called A Brasileira, the Brazilian Lady. And I always think that's very telling because, of course, Brazil is what has been lost. Yeah. And Brazil is expanding and going from strength to strength. And the Portuguese are just sort of left to contemplate. So it's like us looking at America. A little bit, but we never have that with America, do we? I mean, Britain just simply doesn't have a sense of melancholy and nostalgia and mourning for America. I mean, most British people never think about the American War of Independence at all. Yes, that's um, very true. Yes. Uh, so the Saudade, you played the Fado at the beginning. And I guess the Fado is the most, is the defining cultural expression of that melancholy. Yeah, very famous it? for that, isn't it? So are you, are you, so you're not really a, a Fado a file, are you, Tom? I mean, I, I have a terrible sense that you're playing, you played it ironically at the beginning of this podcast. No, not at all. Since we started doing this, I thought um, this is the way to get into a Portuguese frame of mind. So I've been doing nothing but play it. So I've, I've, you... I've got very into it. So I've learned something. Oh. 
That's good. So you've 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 enriched me culturally. Oh, Tom, that's a nice thing to hear. That's I've educated you. Some you've educated me. You have, on, yes, on you have. Haven't they? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. I haven't educated myself. I've been educated by you. that makes me feel great Um, but that's what this podcast is all about isn't it it's it's a self me educating you yeah (laughs) this is my revenge for um i was only listening today it sounds it's a terrible thing to say that you've listened to your own podcast but i had to go to the dentist and i had to drag my son with me to the when i went to the dentist and i left him in the car and i left him listening to to you talking about jrr tolkien and what he found particularly amusing was that you compared me to Sam Gamgee. And when I next <laughs> spoke, I said Tom, and you corrected me and said Mr. Tom to yeah. you. So yeah. the uh, the Fardo discussion. Much hilarity. Much hilarity. Much. Great banter. Right. So Fardo music, it originates in um, Lisbon in the port areas, people think. And it's all these ballads that are full of, of, of sort of nostalgia and stuff. The most famous... Uh, Fado singer in the 19th century was called Maria Severo, and she was the daughter of a prostitute and was a sort of prostitute herself. So you get this sort of sense of it being it's the music of the of the streets. And the queen of Fado is Amalia Rodriguez, and she is um, the best-selling ever Portuguese musical artist. And she, again, comes from poverty. She supposedly sold fruit on the keys of Lisbon, and she always performs wrapped in this kind of black shawl. So she looks old-fashioned. You know, she looks kind of nostalgic. Rocking that retro look. Rocking that retro look, exactly. So she is one of the faces of 20th century Portugal. Um, So people outside Portugal, if who you would recognize, I would say ultimately there are three people. So there there is Amalia Amalia Rodriguez, if you're interested in music. If you're interested in sport, probably the figure Eusebio, the Black Pearl, and we'll come back to him. But the biggest figure by far, and the person with whom actually Amalia Rodriguez's musical career comes to be entwined is the man who decides that he is going to put an end to the sort of the bickering and the turbulence and the inconsequentiality of Portuguese politics. And that is Antonio Salazar. So he's a pretty strange figure, Tom, isn't he? Well, you've, you've described him to me as... Um... <laughs> The, Tolkien, the Tolkien of Portugal, which considering that he's a, a highly reactionary dictator, isn't perhaps the most yeah. flattering reference to Tolkien. But um, No, it's not. But, well, so we obviously recorded about, we did our podcast about Tolkien last week, so Tolkien was much in my mind when I was reading about Salazar. They're born only a few years apart. Salazar was born in 1889. When was Tolkien born again? 18, Mid-1890s, wasn't it? Um uh salazar he comes from a sort of you know it's not a particularly rich family his father is the manager sort of agricultural manager for some rich landowners in the center of portugal in the viseo district um young antonio is very very clever so he studies at a seminary and he trains to become a priest and but he doesn't go through with it like tony abbott at tony abbott yeah so, in fact, he's the Tony Abbott of... Uh, he's the Tony Abbott of, of Those Portugal. are three men who nobody, <laughs> no other history podcast has ever put together. <laughs> Tolkien, Salazar, and Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, of course, who featured in our yes. list of Australian oh. Prime Ministers. Who ate an onion on the campaign trail, didn't he? That's right. By He thought it was an apple and then just had to follow through with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pretend he liked it. Um, but I'll tell you someone else, who, a friend of the show, 
who he resembles yeah. is Anastasius, the um, Byzantine yeah. emperor who stabilizes the currency. Though he's not as bold as no, Anastasius. he's not. No, Salazar isn't bald, but he is an accountant. So I was thinking, kind of yes. famous accountants in history. So he doesn't become <laughs> a priest, does he? Salazar. He that, becomes an accountant. That, that that rest is history episode on the top ten accountants. We're <laughs> yeah. a fifth of the way. We've got two of them. Yeah, <laughs> so yes, he goes to Coimbra, the university that has played a part throughout this whole series because it's the great university of Portugal, and he studies law and finance there, and he becomes an economics professor at Coimbra in his mid twenties. Now this is at a time, Tom. The Portuguese, it sounds harsh to call, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's cancelable now to call a country backward, even if it's a country in the past, but Portugal has been left behind by industrial modernity. Most Portuguese are still illiterate. And they're short, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, because of poverty. Um, so they are ill-fed, they're ill-housed. So the Dutch are all huge, um, and the Portuguese aren't. It, well, exactly. So if they'd refought those Dutch-Portuguese wars yeah, they were talking about... Portuguese yeah. would have been in very poor shape to um, take them to, on. To, to take them on, exactly. And Salazar, in his youth, I mean, he is intensely conservative, and he watches as Portugal goes through these um, sort of almost comical kind of ructions. So, 1910, after all these decades of instability, there's a revolution that overthrows the monarchy, and you have the first Portuguese republic. So, there, it, it, it's happening in kind of parallel, I suppose, with what's happening in Spain, which is better known. And the first Portuguese Republic, I think I'm not being too harsh when I say it's an absolute and utter shambles. So in 16 years, they have eight presidents, they have 44 different cabinets, and they have 21 further coups or uprisings or revolutions of, of various kinds. So it's not, you know, it's, it's basically, um, it makes Theresa May's Britain look yes, like look a, a model of stability. Paragon of stability. Um, massive inflation at the end of the First World War. The Portuguese had joined in the First World War sort of halfway through on the Allied side. For the same reason it enters the um, Napoleonic Wars, that, that basically it, it's attached by commercial and sentimental ties to Britain. And so it yes. kind of joins in. It absolutely makes sense for it to be supporting Britain and France, because, I mean, obviously Britain and France are neighbours. Uh, they're closer than Germany, but for as you say, for commercial reasons, and because the Portuguese empire basically depends on the goodwill of the British. Well, I, 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 I'm ashamed to say I didn't even realise Portugal had entered the First World War. And I, I did not know, I'm reading, that 8,000 competents, Portuguese competents, die on the Western Front, which may not sound much. But to put that in context, if that was mapped onto the United States as it is now, that would be equivalent to 400,000 Americans dying. So, yeah, so so quite quite brutal. So you've got that going on, and you've got this kind of tension, presumably as in Spain, between liberals and devout Catholics. Oh, absolutely, huge tension between the, the Catholic Church. It's that classic pattern that you see in Spain and you see in Latin America: anti-clericals versus kind of clerical conservatives. And that presumably then is the backdrop for, for the most internationally famous thing that happens in Portugal during the First World War, which is the, the visions at Fatima, which is um, a, a village where a group of children who are working as shepherds, um, they, they, the Virgin appears to them. So it, first of all, it's announced by the Archangel Michael, and then the Virgin appears, and there are kind of in, increasing vis numbers of visitations. And then um, the Virgin announces that she's going to appear on the 13th of October. So and did she? 1917. So this is the backdrop. You know, the, the Russian Revolution is oh, the golly. sense that great events are happening in the world. Yeah. Well, I, so I, I'll read you an account that, that was written by a Portuguese writer in 1952 
that what happens so this huge crowd they, they've been the virgin has told these children that she's going to appear on the 13th of october um huge crowds turn up it's not just devout catholics it's also lots of, of anti-clerical kind of liberals who've come to have to have a sneer um and supposedly what happens is that the clouds clear and the sun appears and it's kind of displaying this strange color and then the sun starts to behave very very oddly it began to revolve vertiginously on its axis like the most magnificent firewheel that could be imagined taking on all the colors of the rainbow and sending forth multicolored flashes of light producing the most astounding effect this sublime and incomparable spectacle, which was repeated three distinct times, lasted for about 10 minutes. The immense multitude, overcome by the evidence of such a tremendous prodigy, threw themselves on their knees. And so there's a huge debate about, you know, what was going on. Is it a mass hallucination? And, and this definitely happened, Tom. Huge numbers in the crowds claim to have seen this. Right. So, and crowds are never wrong, as well, we know. Yeah. So, so, so it, it's of huge interest to psychologists and, you know. Yeah mass delusions whatever or maybe it was because it's it, it's that phenomenon that makes the vision of the virgin at fatima so influential throughout the 20th century and there's this idea that you know that the, there are three secrets and that uh, john paul ii is supposed to have had one you know I and mean, he was obsessed by by the our lady of fatima and this idea that who's got the others well the pope the, the papacy has them apparently supposedly that, really? that she revealed these three things were going to happen one of which was the the russian revolution and then the two two other great events that were going to happen so lots of people also thought that that when the um in in the shadow of nuclear war that perhaps the third vision was of the third world war but i, I don't know I, I i'm i'm slightly slightly winging it here crikey what are the other what are the i want to know what the other secrets are <laughs> of course you do of course you do james callahan's victory in the 1976 <laughs> yeah. labor election it was foretold it was foretold and, yeah and uh oh who knows what were the other the pierce brosnan's casting as james bond in the early 1990s but who dominic knows? calm down calm down i'm i'm guessing that against the backdrop of the russian revolution the war <laughs> the convulsions that are happening within portugal that this seeming vision of the Virgin must be quite influential on the willingness of people to to, to give an ear to Salazar. Well, I think that I think you're absolutely right that there's a that the 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 visions of Fatima must reflect an immensely turbulent political and economic landscape in which people are looking for solace and looking for escapism. And um, yeah, the 1920s are a grim decade for Portugal. The late 1910s and early 1920s was a grim time. Lots of bombings, lots of assassination attempts, lots of... It really feels like Spain before the Spanish Civil War. So summon an accountant. Well, so they have a coup in 1926, um, an army coup. The army come in to try and run Portugal's affairs. Portugal is crippled by massive, massive public debt, as well as the inflation and all these other things. And... um, the army say, well, let's get this bloke who's the professor of economics at Coimbra to come in and sort out the the um, the economy. A top boffin. A top boffin. Now, Salazar has been, he, he was in parliament. He'd been elect, briefly elected to parliament in 1921. He'd only gone once and he'd left because he said he was so disgusted. He's very <laughs> anti-parliamentary. Like General Gordon going to see a ballet. Yes, I suppose <laughs> so. So the comparison with, I mean, Tolkien, the, the comparison is, is only sort of, partly tongue-in-cheek Tolkien in Britain to give a British um, comparison he's somebody who is as as we said before very reactionary very ultra-Catholic 
um, very anti-modern. You know, you said his model of um, of politics was a kind of sacral kingship. He sees himself as a conservative anarchist and all this sort of thing. Salazar too dislikes parliamentary democracy, dislikes modernity. But he's not an anar- in any way an anarchist, is he? No, he's not in any way an anarchist. I mean, that is one of many differences. And he doesn't write about hobbits. No, he doesn't. Okay, there are lots of differences. He's not from Birmingham. <laughs> he's got no interest in ancient Finnish. <laughs> he's so never read Beowulf. <laughs> Dominic, I'm afraid the differences are, are actually mounting okay. up. But let's park that comparison. I had thought, Tom, they were identical <laughs> people. But now you've proved me wrong. So Very I well. taught you about Fardo. You've taught me that they were two different people. Brilliant. We've educated each other. Wonderful. We have. We both learned something. Live on a podcast. Um, that they called in Salazar in 1926, and they say, "Will you um, be the f- finance minister?" And basically, he does it for five days. <laughs> he comes in for he does it for five days, and then he gets on the train and goes back to Coimbra, and he says, "You won't let me do what I want, which is to cut spending and to do all these reforms." Um, so I'm not going to do it. And actually, this becomes his his modus operandi for the rest of the 1920s. They keep dragging him back and saying be the finance minister and sort out the accounts. And he keeps threatening to resign. And every time he threatens to resign, they just give him more power, mm-hmm. basically. So that by in 1928, he becomes finance minister sort of p- permanently, as it were. And he gets from the president, who's a guy called Carmona, who's a sort of, he's a Republican and he's another Freemason, actually. Um, Carmona basically says, okay, fine. You have complete right of veto on all the other departments. So you can basically be running the government from the finance ministry. And then by 1932, he becomes prime minister. And really, when I say prime minister, I mean, he basically is the government. So everybody else does what he tells. He has almost quasi-dictatorial power, even so, though he's only prime minister, not president. And, and he's only prime minister for the whole, all the decades that he's in control in Portugal. Yeah, he's never president. He's so, always prime minister serving at the discretion of the president. So, who how, are, how, so how is he maintaining power? I mean, what's, what are the underpinnings, the, the kind of the practical underpinnings? The practical underpinnings are he does sort out the economy. So he does sort out Portugal's debt and he, do, he starts running balanced budgets um, they've had incredible turbulence, yeah, and they recognise that he is an incredibly cl- clever and hardworking man of this kind of flinty, slightly terrifying integrity. Uh, he also has an enormous appeal to Catholic conserv- middle class conservatives, and of course, he's a very useful tool for the r- big landowners, for the army, for the Catholic Church, because they have found somebody who is exceedingly competent, who will protect their interests from socialism. Bolshevism, anarchism, you know, who will, who will, uh, and, and his thing is he freezes in place the status quo. But what I'm trying to, to understand is the degree to which he is a dictator or whether, yeah. w- whether his position in power depends on him having the backing of powerful blocks within the state. Well, I think so, that's probably true of all dictators, isn't it, Tom? That they actually, the, the fantasy that we have, which is that they're Bond villains. Well, no, because, because Hitler is a Fuhrer. Mussolini is the Duce. I mean, they indisputably stand at the head of the state and they have a kind of, they, they claim a heroic yeah. status by virtue of that. I mean, if, if Salazar is, is, is just the prime minister, yeah. you know, he's not even the president, then that is, that is quite a difference, isn't it? This is what makes him, Tom, an, a, such a richly fascinating um, study. Because, as you say, he appears to be in many ways, I mean, you make the comparisons with Hitler and Mussolini. 
Or indeed, Franco would be the... Or Franco. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of people who've listened to this and have heard us jokingly make the Tolkien comparison and will bridle because they will think Salazar is a fascist and J.R.R. Tolkien wasn't a fascist. But Salazar, in some ways, you know, he, he wears a business suit. He's very frugal. He's just the prime minister. He doesn't he hold rallies. No, he has no rallies. He has no personality cult. He doesn't really have a political party. So they have a, a new constitution, a corporatist constitution. He has a, a single party the National Union, which he basically sells as a non-party. Um, he has no interest in mobilizing the masses. He doesn't really sell himself as anything other than a, a technocrat to the public, um, sort of Catholic technocrat. There's no sense of energizing young people. There's no sense of embracing modernity, of, of military expansion, of all these other aspects of the sort of the hyperactive, the hysterical side of 1920s fascism. He has none of that. So on his propaganda posters that he portrays himself as a, a as figures from the Portugal's heroic past. So he's he compares himself to to John Braganza, Jarrod Braganza. Um He does indeed. And actually so the great historian of fascism, Robert Paxton, says that one of the confusing things about Salazar is that Salazar, who is he he copies often the the language and the iconography, which is so common in, in the nineteen twenties and thirties, of fascism. So you see a, a Salazarist monument or you see a Salazarist poster and they do look very fascistic. But the difference is that there has none of the dynamism or the excitement or the radicalism that fascism holds out, which is so intoxicating to younger voters often in the 20s. So in Mussolini's Italy, let's say. Um, everything that Salazar is trying to do, it's quite a depersonalized regime. Um, so the image of him that's presented to the public is this sort of Mr. F he's very frugal, um, he's unmarried. He, he doesn't like the trappings of power. Yeah, he's he kind of monkish. Monkish, exactly. Yeah. Monkish, an academic, an academic, actually. Yeah. And people often say, you know, he's, he, he governs like a professor. He's, yeah. He works all the time in his office. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in the heating because he thinks it's wasteful. So he's Or like a school teacher, a teacher treating the Portuguese. Portuguese as children. So, Tom, I was just going to say, you'll enjoy this. You know, we talked in the last podcast about that bloke who wouldn't take his coat off. Yeah. Dom Zhao. Salazar yeah. won't take his coat off in the winter because he, he doesn't believe in heating. So he works in his overcoat. Well, a, a model there for everyone in Europe yeah, this, this winter. winter. <laughs> Do yes. as Salazar did. That's a, that's a slogan and a half. Um, um, but, but so if he's a school teacher, school teachers have the right to punish their pupils, their students. Yes. Uh, so what is the apparatus of control that Salazar so, is exercising? There's a secret police. It goes through various incarnations. It's best known as the PIDE. Um, and they have prisons. They have. Do they have concentration camps? They have. Uh, they have political prisons. I think it's. I think it's fairer to say rather than concentration camps per se for dissidents. I mean, we'll come after the break to some of the suppression of dissidents in the post World War Two era. But they do. People do die, and people do disappear. Um, and and one of the reasons that Salazar is so much debated, and that in a way, he seems such an ambiguous figure, is that on the one hand, people disappear and die. On the other hand, the numbers by comparison with other 20th century societies are not very great. So I, I found it, I, sort of researching this podcast, I found it very hard to find a definitive figure, which probably tells you its own story. So it's maybe between 50 and 100 people in Portugal. And how many, how many decades is in power? Over, so what are we talking from the mid-1920s to 19... 68 1970 so okay. that's quite a long time i mean you could say one or two people a year 
are right. tortured to death in prison, beaten up by the secret police, um, are, are disappeared right. by his secret police. And but, it, but Portugal doesn't have the death penalty. So the death penalty had been abolished in the late 19th century. And um, he, doesn't, he doesn't reintroduce it. No, he does not reintroduce it. So he has what's called his Estado Novo, his new state. Again, you know, that's very, very 20s, 30s kind of dictatorship, isn't it? To talk of a mm-hmm. new state. But the difference between his new state and Mussolini or Hitler is he doesn't want to lead Portugal into a new age. He wants to lead it back, doesn't he? He wants to stop the clock. Yeah, and lead, if anything, So this is your back. Tolkien comparison. He wants to go back to a Catholic medieval... A Catholic feudal society, virtually. I mean, just... You know, he doesn't th- – there are changes, so people become more literate. There are new schools. There are all these kinds of things. And the economy is run more competently than it had been in previous decades. But really, he doesn't want anything to change. I mean, there's a wonderful story that um, when they, someone told him much later, in the 60s, I think, that oil had been discovered in Angola, oh, yes. which you would think he would be delighted yes. by. He said, yes. oh, oh, what a pity. <laughs> yes. Well uh- – <laughs> That that's also very Tolkien. Well, I think. Listen, let's let's take a break now, and then when we come back, um, as it were, dig a little deeper uh, and describe his relation with with Hitler, with Franco, with Mussolini, and what happened yeah. in the Second World War, and then the aftermath of that. So we'll see you back in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hola y bienvenido al resto de historia. Tom, we are nearing the end of our great Portuguese odyssey. We are. And you have uh, introduced this extraordinary figure, Antonio Salazar. Mm. Dictator, or is he dictator of Portugal? This kind of monkish figure. Um, and before the break, you were talking about him in relation to the uh, the, the fascist leaders. Um if Salazar is a devout Catholic, yeah. what is his attitude to the kind of the pagan strain, say, within within Nazism? Well, that's exactly what he would call it. Do you know, he would love your book, Dominion. You would Indeed. have had great chats with Salazar about Dominion, Tom. 
Okay, I don't quite know how to feel about that. <laughs> um, so Salazar does think that Nazis are pagan. So he's okay. He's he's a very very reactionary Catholic, and he hates Bolshevism, socialism, all of this stuff, which he sees as godless and evil. So from that point of view, he sees the fascists as a, I suppose, a useful bulwark against it. But on the other hand, he he goes. He says he describes Hitler. And the Nazis, as he says, they are pagan. They're incompatible with the character of our Christian civilization. Um, there are attempts to have kind of overtly fascist movements in Portugal, as there are in every other European country. In Portugal, it's a group called the Blue Shirts. Salazar basically purges them, denounces them. He said he condemns, and it's interesting, he condemns what he calls their exaltation of youth, the cult of force through direct action the principle of the superiority of state political power and social life and the propensity for organizing masses behind a single leader. I mean, that's such a pretty good, you know, academic definition of fascism. And he basically says all of that is, is bad. He very much sounds like the kind of chap who would not be in favor of the exaltation of youth. Definitely not a man for the exaltation of youth. No. Is, is there something Jacob Rees Moggish about him? About no, him? I don't. Well, Maybe I'm revealing too much about my opinion of Jacob Rees-Mogg, but I don't think there's anything at all contrived about. So Jacob Rees-Mogg loves the media and he loves to appear it's on the okay. media. And the, the the persona is very carefully calibrated, you know, to get publicity. Salazar hates publicity. He He's genuinely monkish. He's very austere. Um, he's not going to be giving quotes to Channel 4 News. Right. He's not rich. No, he's not. Well, he's, I mean, he's not badly off. I mean, he has a summer house and he has his residence and stuff. But is he, but he, is lives, he corrupt? He's not corrupt. He's not. No, I don't think he is especially corrupt, actually. So I mean, he, he's definitely, he he works with people who are corrupt. And you could, and like all dictatorships, his regime has plenty of corruption. But personally, he lives with this, I mean, this extraordinary personal life. So he, he works all the time. Uh, Life magazine said, I mean, very insulting to um, the Portuguese, actually, this, the American magazine Life said of him, he is everything that most Portuguese are not, calm, silent, ascetic, puritanical, a glutton for work, cool to women. But he lives with this housekeeper called Donna Maria. Um, so she's she's a sort of peasant. She was initially a sort of illiterate sort of servant woman who basically stays with him as his housekeeper. Is that in inverted commas, housekeeper? Well, people have said, isn't it mysterious that he has this sort of live-in companion? And um, she had two nieces that he was very kind to. And so oh, some yeah. of his Portuguese opponents said, oh, these are obviously his children. I don't think that's true. I don't think they were. An extraordinary thing that when she died in 1981, so 11 years after Salazar, the director of the care home where she had been living decided that for the sake of her reputation uh, she must he, she must be basically exhumed and he would have a, her examined to see if she was still a virgin and was she and um apparently she was so yeah i mean that is a very okay. bizarre so so properly monkish yeah but the other comparison is i mean let's take the comparison not just with hitler but with mussolini and franco mussolini is all about strutting it's about pomposity it's about display and swagger and sort of this sort of almost comical kind of virility salazar absolutely it's inconceivable you cannot picture him on the balcony of in addressing great crowds mm. franco is incredibly corrupt i mean franco is a, a very unlikable man um 
Salazar can't really stand Franco. Franco is a great show off. Uh, he's all about, you know, he's lots of medals, lots of pomp, lots of display. Um, his family become incredibly rich. Again, Salazar has, has none of this. So one of the things that I suppose makes him almost uncomfortable to, to study is that in some ways he's the kind of person that when we're writing about political leaders, we're often tempted to find quite admirable in quite a chilly way because he does have this kind of sort of seriousness and integrity. But of course he is running a very repressive, incredibly reactionary regime in which you, you know, the, the free speech is limited, um, the newspapers, there's huge censorship, um, and, and political dissidents are jailed, if not tortured. I mean, I suppose you could put it this way. If you were given the choice to lead your life uh, through the 30s and 40s in Italy, Spain, Germany, or the USSR, or Portugal, yeah. you'd probably go for Portugal. Yeah, you would. You I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. And in fact, that's the interesting question, isn't it? So given where Portugal is, it's on the European periphery, given its economic and political condition, um, so which is analogous to Spain, maybe Italy or Greece, I suppose, or indeed countries of Latin America. I mean, Portugal is, is, sleep, is terribly sleepy and stagnant in the middle of the 20th century. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't have coups it doesn't have a civil war right it doesn't have mass yeah. repression mass terror all of these kinds of things so you know best of a bad lot maybe the best of a bad job or i mean who knows the alternative to salazar probably wasn't was a civil war a, i would guess a happy successful democracy it might well have been yeah more bombings more terrorism more and he keeps portugal out of the second world war well yes and no actually interestingly so it's it's basically the peninsular war all over again so Salazar is is sort of relatively benevolently disposed towards the Nazis. He's not, you know, by the standards of people's attitudes to the Nazis. You know, he's so anti-communist that in some ways they could be natural allies. But on the other hand, of course, Britain is all important. So Britain, even in the 19th and early 20th century, still accounts for a huge proportion, something like a quarter, I think, of Portuguese imports. And, it, and you know, it's a dominating kind of economic factor. Um, so he can't alienate the British, but also he can't, he's terrified of alienating the Germans. He doesn't want to jump into bed with the British because he thinks Lisbon will be bombed and you know Portuguese bases will be bombed and so on. So basically, he right at the beginning, he 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 squares it with the British. He says, you know, we're still your allies, but we're going to remain neutral in this war. And the British are completely fine with that. They understand that and they actually confirm that. They send him an, a kind of diplomatic note saying that's completely fine. And the and in fact, when Churchill comes in, I mean, the British go out of their way to say to Salazar, "It's fine that you're neutral. You know, thank thank you for being neutral." So Salazar sends, sorry, Churchill sends Salazar a personal letter in the autumn of 1940. I commend you for all you're doing. Look after your country and all this. It's, Churchill gets Oxford University to give Salazar an honorary degree. He must have liked that, I guess. I bet he loved that. Yeah, of course. Um, they send a sort of they they upgrade the embassy and they send a very distinguished diplomat, Sir Ronald Campbell, to be the British ambassador to Portugal to say, "Look how seriously we take you." Um, the Portuguese have a big exhibition in 1940 to celebrate the anniversary of the founding of Portugal as a kingdom in 1140 and its independence from Spain in 1640. And the British go out of their way to send the Duke of Kent 
So a senior member of the royal family to represent them, even in wartime, at this exhibition in Portugal to show Salazar how much they think of him. And what, what do the British get out of that? Well, they get two things. So one, they're very keen to keep getting tungsten. Portugal is a, is a supplier mm-hmm. of tungsten, or wolfram, as it's sometimes called. And they're supplying it to both Britain and Germany. And actually, there's incredible scenes at the beginning of the war where British and German agents are sort of rushing to villages to get their supply, competing to get their hands on these. It's a very good setting for spy thrillers, isn't it? It is. There's loads of spy thrillers in, uh, set in Portugal, in Lisbon in the 1940s. So they get that. But the thing that they want above all is the Azores. So the Azores as an Atlantic base. And they are quite sort of, they, they, they take their time before asking for it. So really they only get the Azores. They only ask for the Azores once it's kind of obvious that they're going to win. Salazar had planned that if the Germans attacked Portugal, he would evacuate to the Azores with Britain. He'd do a peninsular war style. The British would evacuate him. The British would evacuate him. But in 1943, the British under, because the Americans keep saying, why don't we ask, get the Azores from Portugal? The British ask um, Salazar for the Azores to, if they can use these bases. They actually have a plan that if he says no, it's called Operation Brisk. Your brother would enjoy this, Tom. They would have all these landing craft and they would seize the Azores themselves, a bit like we did with Iceland. But they don't need to do it because actually Salazar says yes. And so the British are able to, he says, as long as you know you don't use any sort of Portuguese planes or, you know, implicate mm. us, you can use these bases, which we do. So the British use the Azores. So they we're very grateful to Salazar for that. So that's why he stands so high in Western esteem and sort of Anglo-American esteem anyway, at the end of World War II. When Hitler dies, doesn't he fly the flags at half-mast? Does he? I think he does. Right. So Eamon de Valera. Yeah. Eamon de Valera. Yes. Yeah. And uh, actually, he probably got on well with Eamon de Valera. I don't know yeah, they seem was. quite similar types. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there we've got, so now it's the quartet, Tolkien, Eamon de Valera, Salazar, and Tony <laughs> Abbott. <laughs> the mad monks. Um, but, but the other thing is, uh, is refugees, which is really interesting. So the Portuguese saved thousands of people from Hitler. Uh, and the interesting question is whether this is because of Salazar or despite Salazar. So definitely he says to the Portuguese consuls, there are some people you should let in. So, for example, um, the last Habsburg empress, Zita, and her son Otto, they are rescued um, through the, the help of the Portuguese from because Otto von Habsburg had actually been sentenced to death by the Nazis. Um, he goes on to become an MEP um, into the 1990s and beyond. So they are rescued by the Portuguese. But there are also these amazing stories about Portuguese diplomats who basically give out thousands and thousands of visas to Jews in France, the most famous one is a guy called Aristides de Souza Mendes, and he's the consul in Bordeaux. And he's he was declared a was it a righteous among the nations? Is it yeah, in Israel? Yeah. Uh, in Israel, because he, I mean, people argue about how many he gave out. He may well have given out tens of thousands. Some people say that's exaggerated, but but I think it's plausible. Tens of, I mean, literally, sort of like confetti um, to people to try and get them out give them Portuguese visas so that they can escape before the Nazis catch up with them. And actually, that guy, um, Sousa Mendes, when the Portuguese had this big vote to decide who was the greatest Portuguese in history, he came third. So who came first? Salazar. Did he? Salazar won 41% of the vote. Now, this is in Did 2007. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. So yeah, that is fascinating. I think one of the biggest margins, because there are lots of it, this TV show, for those people who don't know, 
was modelled on the BBC series Great Britain. So there are lots of imitators all over the world. And Salazar, I think, won with one of the biggest pluralities of anybody who did win. How fascinating. How um, fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and, and that's presumably because, well, as, as we were saying before the break, he, he holds Portugal together. There's no civil war. There's a measure of stability. He keeps Portugal out of the Second World War. But then going into the, into the 50s and 60s, so into the Cold War, the Americans and NATO quite keen to have a, a, a staunch anti-communist on their side. Absolutely. He's a founder member of NATO. And, and so what's the apparatus of repression? Is it, it Does it become worse after the war or much of a muchness? Uh, does it become worse? It's certainly maybe more overt and maybe more glaring. So the most famous example of this is 1958. Now, as we said before the before the break, Salazar was never president. He was always prime minister. So actually, he served at the discretion of successive presidents. Even though he runs the government, he is the big man. You know, they defer to him. He has lots of rich and influential friends. But in 1958, um, an Air Force general called Humberto Delgado, who was actually the founder of TAP, the Portuguese airline, um, still the Portuguese national flag carrier, he says, I'm going to run in this presidential election as an independent, as an independent candidate. And during the campaign, somebody says... Uh, will you? What would you do when you're elected? And he says, "Well, the first thing I do would be to sack Salazar as prime minister." And from that point onwards, people call him General Semedo, the general without fear, mm-hmm. because this is a thing that you just don't say. Yeah, it's like saying as a senator saying, "I'm going to take down Augustus." Similar yeah, kind of. Yeah, precisely. And actually, do you know what, Tom? I thought about Augustus when I was reading up on Salazar. There's, there's a the, the best book in English, by the way, is by a guy called Tom Gallagher, who is a professor at the University of Bradford. Because Augustus, not altogether dissimilar, you know, made a made a big public show of his frugality and his kind of I'm an ordinary Roman and just holding an office by uh, the will of the Senate, all that sort of stuff. But going back to Humberto Delgado, Tom, Humberto Delgado runs and he gets actually 25 percent in the presidential election. But most people think if it had been a real free election, he would have he could have won. He could he might well have got more than 50 percent. After the election, for his temerity, he is expelled from the army and eventually exiled. But in 1965, Humberto Delgado is lured into what seems like an ambush on the Spanish border. He's lured back over the border and murdered by the secret police. Probably they were hoping to kidnap him and bring him to Portugal for trial. And his death, the death of somebody so high profile, a guy who'd you know, been a presidential candidate seven years earlier, that is, I think, the moment where it becomes obvious to the to the world who had sort of not really, you know, been looking at Portugal. People say, you know what, this regime is actually pretty unpleasant. So it's in nineteen sixty five. I mean, it's it's a year of help, swinging sixties. I mean, it's all kicking in. And there's a funny uh, Tom Gallagher says in his book, you know, nineteen sixty six um, was it the year of the Beatles' revolver? Salazar is sitting around at the table with his sort of aides, complaining about the Reformation. The French Revolution. Well, that's very Tolkien behaviour. Yeah, it is very Tolkien behaviour. So to go back to the, um, the, the comparison with Augustus' bread and circuses, the circuses, uh, Salazar is, is, as you said, a very austere figure, not a guy who you'd associate with fun. He's not Captain Fun. But <laughs> um, he does start to... So, so there's this phrase, Fatima for religion. We've talked about Fatima. Fardo for nostalgia. He doesn't really approve of Fardo, but he comes to accept that he, you know, it's, it's quite useful to him. Yes. Uh, and football for the glory of Portugal. Yeah. So those three things. Fatima is bringing in tourists and pilgrims. Um, so that's all good. 
the fado, as you absolutely say, fado was the music of the streets. It had a kind of radicalism to it. But what happens after the war is fado becomes kind of slightly tamed, and it and the nostalgia does it? Yeah, appropriated. The nostalgia is kind of turned up to eleven, and that figure who who brought us into the show, Amalia Rodriguez, kind of in her black shawl, um, singing these laments. The Salazar, she's not a Salazarist, but the regime, and in fact Salazar despises her, but the regime use her, you know, to mm-hmm. to to sell abroad this image of Portugal as an unchanging, you know, old fashioned country of of true Catholics and and stuff. So there's that, and then there's football, and football in both Spain and Portugal in the 1950s and 1960s becomes an, an enormous asset to those regimes. I I, I was reading that. <laughs> The newspaper, the f- journalists reporting on, um, you know, the Portuguese national team or Portuguese clubs playing other clubs from other countries, that um, they the, the journalists would get in trouble if for any lack of patriotic hyperbole, right? Yes. Which I think is something that we could profitably introduce here. We could absolutely do with that, yeah, Tom. British really sports could. writers, yeah. take note. All they do is moan, isn't it? it well, this podcast, Tom, um, is produced by Gary Lineker's company. And yes. maybe you should, ha- you've educated me in this podcast. <laughs> maybe you should have a word with Gary and say, yeah. Gary, you know, take a more, more Salazarist, Salazarist approach to match of the day and the World Cup. <laughs> to reporting and, yeah. on, on England at the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. Have words with Jonathan Wilson as well. Sort him out. Exactly. But um, no, these are glory days for Portuguese football because Benfica, the, the big Lisbon team, uh, they win the European Cup the ancestor of the Champions League in 1961 and 62. They're finalists three times. Uh, after that in 63, 65, 68, Portugal gets the semifinals in England in 1966. And this is, of course, the, the heyday of Eusebio. Who, and Eusebio, is a, he is probably the single most internationally famous Portuguese person before Cristiano Ronaldo. Famous for his history of the church. The biography of Constantine. <laughs> right. Well, well, Eusebio is interesting because, of course, he's he's black, so he's born in Mozambique from a very poor family. And it, what I think is fascinating about Eusebio is Eusebio becomes this international avatar of Portugal at a point at which Portugal's relationship with those colonies, with Mozambique, with Angola, is increasingly strained. So, as we said, they'd always said they're not an empire; we're a pluricontinental nation. But obviously, by the mid nineteen sixties, you know, well, they lose Goa, don't they? Yes, they've lost. They lose Goa, Goa in the sixties. So there's a brilliant story about that. That um, <laughs> the Indian army was kind of, you know, in this moving in on Goa. Nehru sends the tanks in, and the um, <laughs> the, uh, the the military authorities in Goa send a telegram to the general staff in Lisbon requesting sausages, um, and sausages is code for uh, cannon shells, and the general staff. <laughs> Sent a whole batch of pork sausages. So they actually um, sent them sausages. They literally sent them sausages because they'd forgotten that this was the code. Oh, so uh, so Goa falls to becomes part of India again. Yeah, and by the late nineteen sixties, there have been there have been uprisings in Angola and Mozambique in in what becomes Guinea Bissau, and um, you know that the the Portuguese are very dependent on they're still dependent actually on Britain and and on the United States. Salazar is becoming boxed in. He's becoming increasingly, you know, his friends are South Africa and Rhodesia. So the breakaway regime in Rhodesia, and he's sort of supporting the Ian Smith regime in Rhodesia. So actually Mozambique becomes one of the world's 
most important kind of trading centers because all Rhodesian trade has to be yeah. funneled through Mozambique to break the boycott. But, it, uh, you know, the spending on the army to try and fight off the sort of nationalist uprisings in, in Africa uh, is absorbing more and more of the um, Portuguese budget. So in total, 8,000, so the same as the first, similar to the First World War, actually, Tom, about 8,000 Portuguese are killed fighting in Angola and Mozambique in the late And 60s. presumably the Portuguese economy is still very much flatlining at this point. Yeah. I mean, what it's grown... So all Western European economies had grown after the World War II. So Salazar's defenders will often say, "Look, look how much Portugal, Portugal's economy grew in the you know nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties." I think the truth probably is that whoever, you know, Mickey Mouse could have been prime yeah, minister of okay. Portugal, and it would have grown. But you're right, Portugal's economy is still it is still the poorest country in Western Europe. It can ill afford these African wars. And there's a definite sense, I think, by the late 1960s, that this guy who was reactionary even by the standards <laughs> yeah, of the, the 1920s, 1920s. <laughs> who's still running the country. So he's still running the country in 1968. So the yes. Soissons are out on the streets and the hair yeah. is long and the joysticks are burning. And he's fulminating against Martin Luther. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what happens to him? He's at his house, um, his sort of summer residence. There are different accounts, but I think the most likely thing is he falls off his chair. Some people say it's in the bath, but I think it's his chair. Um, on the 3rd of August, 1968, and he suffers um, a brain hemorrhage. He appears to get better, but after two weeks, he he goes into a massive decline. He goes into hospital. He goes into a coma. The president, who's a, a sort of one of these identicate, slightly faceless kind of military um, conservative types. He thinks Salazar must be about to die. So he formally dismisses him as prime minister. And he gets another academic, actually, the former rector of Lisbon University, one of Salazar's old associates called Marcelo Caetano, a, a very distinguished constitutional lawyer. You know, it's, it's weird that there's this dictatorship of academics, of university professors. Um, so Caetano becomes prime minister. But Salazar doesn't die. He lives for another 23 months and nobody tells him. Is he conscious? He's conscious. He's lucid. He's been in a coma for, I think, a month. Um, but nobody says, you're no longer prime minister. I mean, <laughs> so, they basically say... So what, he's kind of giving orders and people pretend to obey them? I think he's he's in a... I mean, he's obviously not complete. He's 80. He's He's obviously not, you know functioning at the peak of dynamism and people are saying to him um but it's like you know, joe biden <laughs> oh, that's, well i think joe biden is still president isn't he i mean unless <laughs> yeah, I things are is. happening behind the scenes that we don't know um yeah i mean there are I've, I've seen very exaggerated stories about this where people say oh the lisbon newspapers produced fake editions which were shown to salazar every day so that he would think he was still prime minister i i find that hard to believe um, that a newspaper would go to such ludicrous lengths for almost two years. But I think they didn't tell him he'd been sacked. And, you know, he just thinks that my deputies are, are doing the yeah. work and I'm sort of sitting here at home recuperating. And then eventually in 1970, he dies and the regime, well, we will come back to the fate of the regime and the, and the last Western European revolution, which takes place in the 1970s. I think we should come back to that, shouldn't we, Dom? Yes, as part of this exciting package of uh, projects that we have coming your way um, in November. So uh, we won't say anything more. We'll just kind of tantalise you with that. But we will be returning to, uh, to Portugal and finishing off this story. 
So, Tom, let me ask you, just before we wrap up, I'm curious about what, what you think about Salazar. So you're an outsider to the to this, um, as it were. You've not written about Portuguese history, uh, but you are obviously really interested in the the Catholicism and the, the political Christianity, I suppose. So what's your take on him? Um, I'm intrigued by the degree to which he clearly had, he must have had a measure of popular support because if he... I mean, if his, his security apparatus, I mean, it sounds repressive, but it's not the Gestapo, is it? No, it's grim. And I don't want to downplay it because there'll be some Portuguese listeners to this. By and large, the, the traditional fascist states, they make a virtue of being repressive. They yeah. they rub people's noses in it. Um, if he's not doing that, then he must have a measure of support. And, and I guess the fact that 40% vote for him in this poll suggests mm. that, that it's it's ongoing. That is, I guess, unsettling. If you're for narratives of liberal, you know, the perspective of yeah. democracy and liberalism, to imagine that that someone who is so reactionary and so clearly repressive could have maintained such popular support for so long. Well, what's interesting is he's become quite fashionable in some circles in recent years. So the magazine, The American Conservative, published a big essay a couple of years ago called Waiting for Salazar, basically saying, you know, he's the philosopher king, uh, post-liberal age. But was he a philosopher king? Dean Acheson who was the Truman Secretary of State, he described him as the closest thing the, the, the 20th century had to a platonic philosopher king. I mean... But platonic philosopher kings are famously repressive. I mean, I think I agree. I think he is an, un, an unsettling... It's odd that he's an unsettling figure because he's so ambiguous, because there are things about him, the work ethic, the seriousness that... The thing about fascism, you know who the goodies and the baddies are. You know, it's yeah. very clear who the baddies are. Uh, I, I guess Salazar is... I mean, he sounds as if it's a slightly more complicated figure than that, that you can't just yes, 100% right. engage in the kind of goodies and baddies. That's, I think that's right. That's what Tom Gallagher, his biographer, says, is that he's much more ambiguous. And actually, it's very hard to kind of pin him down and with a moralistic kind of, kind of label. Um, anyway. So he's not, he's not racist. Is he racist? Not racist. Not massively overtly racist, I wouldn't have said. But, I mean, maybe some Portuguese listeners will know more about this than me. But I don't think the racism – I mean, he's not – so, for example – He's not overtly anti-Semitic. And people often said in the 1930s and 1940s, Portugal is unusual in being in having so little anti-Semitism. Now, actually, Franco, I would say, was much more anti-Semitic than, um, than Salazar was. Well, I think that there was this tradition in Portugal of regretting uh, the fact that the, the Jewish population had gone to Amsterdam and feeling that they'd really right. they'd been robbed. That, yes. You know, that that had been a terrible mistake. Uh, a kind of hankering, I suppose, for for what might have been. So perhaps that's something that feeds into it. I don't know. Yes. Um, and Tom, have you been converted to Lucifilia? After I the have. End of our, yes, uh, end of our I completely have. I really want to go to, to Lisbon now. Yeah. Oh, Lisbon's a fantastic yeah. city. Absolutely stunning city. One of the top. So there are four great cities, as you know, in Europe. There is Lisbon, as I told you the other day. Lisbon, Vienna, Stockholm, and Wolverhampton. Yeah. Okay. Two of them effectively Portuguese cities, actually, these days. <laughs> yes, of course. Wolverhampton, yeah, absolutely. Um, I will go uh, because obviously, you know, as I said, I, I associate Portugal with sunburn to my buttocks. That is that the image on which we're really going to end this podcast? I'm prepared to overlook that. You have. Okay. I, I feel that you have educated me. And in fact, well, to a degree, I've educated myself because I've really enjoyed reading. I like to think we've well. all been educated, Tom. <laughs> um, yeah. So on that bombshell, we will say adeus to all of you. Uh, you Obrigado. can go off and li listen to your father music and uh, help yourself to pastiche de nata. And uh, we will return with, I can't even remember what we're doing next week, but um, it'll be absolutely, it'll be 
absolutely riveting. It'll be great, won't it? It'll be brilliant. It will indeed. It will indeed. So uh, enjoy that, and we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe. <laughs>